Chaos in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. Saturday Night Live, Season 3, Episode 13, starring Arch Garfunkel. Originally aired on March 11th, 1978. Hello, welcome to SN Hell. My name is Keith. With me as always, my good buddy, Matt. Hello, Matt. How are we feeling tonight, bud? I'm excited to see the Art Garfunkel episode. I really liked him on his previous appearances. Thought he was good. And, uh, I mean, it has to be acknowledged that I've made several jokes about my speculation that Art Garfunkel is a sexual demon. You've invented a whole club around that. Stop talking about penises so much on the show. (laughs) No one's complained yet. I mean, I have. But uh, it's really been really nice hearing from folks, especially the last two episodes, the Chevy Chase Returns episode and the O.J. Simpson episode. A lot of uh, nice comments come in pretty quick on that. It's a hit, Jerry. I was told we we handled O.J. well. It's not an easy thing to talk about, but uh, naturally there's going to be some comedy, especially if Chili's involved. I listened to it today. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Now, tonight, uh, it's not just Matt and I. We have with us our third chair, one of our regulars. It's Mark. Hello, Mark. Hi, Mark. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. It's been a while, Mark. Not a long, long while. We last saw you at, uh, was it Ray Charles, I think? Yeah. Yeah, it's been a minute. You know, you're not going to get all the musicians host episodes. I'll take them on for the politicians. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, Art Garfunkel's our host tonight. Stephen Bishop is his musical guest, but naturally Art does uh, a fair bit of music himself. At this point in time, Art, this is his third episode where he appears, the first being the episode two with Paul Simon. And then he was back earlier this year, very briefly, for the uh, Charles Grodin episode. So far, as Matt has alluded to, uh, big fans of Art. Yeah, I've enjoyed all his appearances and got some good laughs. He's quite a character. Yeah, yeah. Mark, how do you feel about Art Garfunkel? Honestly, I'm not, like, super familiar with Art Garfunkel outside of, you know, uh, Simon Garfunkel from back in the day. I was pretty excited to get into this episode after hearing how you guys spoke about him. And So, yeah, at this point in time, he had uh, released the album Watermark in October of 77, and that went to uh, number hit 19, number 19, went gold in the U.S. So, uh, you know, he's doing well for himself at this point. I always kind of felt like there was this narrative that, you know, like Garfunkel was sort of the forgotten one by the time, you know, I came around in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. But looking back, it seems like he's just as much of a star at the time. Yeah, at this point, he he does leave music for quite a long spell. I mean, Simon goes on to be certainly the more commercially successful, but Garfunkel fans are passionate Garfunkel fans. He's often talked about as the lesser member. And that's purely based on the commercial success of the 80s. You know, he didn't have a You Can Call Me Al. Are you guys good to go with the show? Yeah. We have a disclaimer. Jacques Cousteau gets an undersea enema. Will not be seen tonight in order to bring you this special presentation. Is this your first of these uh, disclaimers, Mark? I believe so, yeah. What was your uh, What was your thoughts on that one? I had a chuckle. It's it's up my alley, you know, stupid poop jokes and all. It's uh, it's the weakest thus far, to be honest. Yeah, like, I, I didn't like this one as much yeah. as the others. They're usually pretty outrageous. Yeah, the Grinch who raped and strangled Christmas. Uh, <laughs> Little House on the Prairie burns. Little the House ground. on the Prairie burns to the ground. Yeah, the Waltons eat their young. 
stuff like that. <laughs> oh, okay, so this yeah. one's a little little tame and and phoned in compared to those, but as a yeah. first one, it worked pretty good. Okay, good, good. Really, I'm getting it in the right order at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so we go to our cold open, and it's called Modern Crimes. It's a parody of Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times. It's an old silent movie, um, and it's got two Swiss robbers, played by Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, and they're stealing the body of Charlie Chaplin from the graveyard. They do some shtick where they're trying to run different ways while holding Chaplin's body in a car- rolled up in a carpet. Bill comes in as a cop and says, no loitering, this is Switzerland, and when I say says, he mouths it, and it appears as a title card on the uh, screen. So the two robbers try to run off in different ways, but the uh, carpet reveals the body of Charlie Chaplin, as played by Gilda. Cut to Bill Murray as the cop. He gets a sense that something is rotten in the state of Switzerland, and he walks by and sees Belushi and Aykroyd sitting on a bench with Chaplin's body. They lift her up to show that she's okay, or lift him up to show he's okay, and the Chaplin comes alive and mouths live from New York. Title card gives the intro. I loved this. Uh... I really did. I love silent films anyway. I'm a fan of the work of Chaplin. Chaplin had just died Christmas 77. He was buried in Switzerland, and his body was actually stolen by two men on March 2nd, 78. It was ransomed unsuccessfully for 600K. Five weeks later, two political refugees were arrested, and they led the police to Chaplin's body. In a weird twist of fate, John Belushi, after he passed away, he was reinterred somewhere else in the graveyard because there were rumors that he was going to be stolen but uh, the real reason was that too many visitors were coming and just littering the grave and such this sketch was funny it was quick it was well done all four hammed it up excellent love silent movies awfully tricky to recreate the look especially in a live format but they came pretty darn close here i love the way they did live from new york i thought the music was perfect all things considered this was a very very strong cold open for me yeah i quite liked it as well i thought they they nailed the style like the way everyone was moving they they, they really you know did their homework there and it felt like they were doing a legitimate parody and you know some good physical humor uh it looked like belushi might have snuck a little um f-bomb in when he said let's get out of here uh, in between, which I thought was like a cheeky little modern play on on the silent movie. The pacing was good, and the the time they dedicated to it was was really strong too. I didn't care for it at all. I guess I'll be that guy. I, I thought it's a, a weird choice I wrote to uh, do a cold open as a silent movie. I really think the purpose of this sketch, you know, to start the show, you want to get the live crowd pumped up. You want to get the home audience pumped up. And now if I'm watching a little silent movie thing, uh, I don't really feel very pumped up. I I didn't like how it ended. No energy, uh, you know, no delivery of the line. I thought Belushi and Dan could have been anyone. The weekend at Bernie's thing uh, made me chuckle. Bill pulled some funny faces, but I thought this was a terrible choice for a cold open. Did you guys know that Chaplin's body had been stolen when the sketch started? No, actually, the getting that the background makes it make more sense. I, I wasn't even sure who was in it until it rolled out, and then like that looks like Charlie Chaplin, and it wasn't until they were sitting on the bench doing the weekend at Bernie style shtick that I was like that definitely is Charlie Chaplin or supposed to be. I had no idea about any of this. Uh, no, I didn't know any of this weird Charlie Chaplin's body stuff. That's uh, yeah. that's pretty wild. Yeah, when he was reburied, they encased him in cement. He's not Houdini. <laughs> Then we go to the intro. There's nothing new here, uh, so I'll just I'll pass through the intro unless there's some weird thing you guys noticed that I hadn't seen. Is Stephen Bishop at all related to Joey Bishop? 
I don't believe so, no. Oh, that was my only question. We now have the monologue. It starts with Art at the top of the stairs uh, with that close-up, and he's bopping away. He comes down, huge applause, goes immediately into music, and it's his version of Sam Cooke's Wonderful World. He'd released that in uh, 78 with James Taylor and Paul Simons. It hit number 17. I'm a big fan of Cook's version, um, but Art's version is very different, and I really, really liked it. Art's speaker feedbacks on him. Belushi comes to home base to see if there's a problem. Art mentions that there's some problem with the, the music, uh, sorry, with the equipment. Belushi kicks the speaker and tells Art the whole place is falling apart, because NBC only sees them as a late-night show, and they don't get the good equipment. Belushi says they're being used by NBC, despite the fact that they've given so much to the network. As an example, he says there's no reason why Garrett should wake up every morning to drive Jane Polly to work. But Art says he's honored to be on the show. John gets very angry and says he's the only one that would come to help Art. And Art is being very ungrateful because Art is a sellout. Belushi says Art can just go on with his song, man. I thought this was an excellent intro. It's probably among the first of, this is what becomes the most common type of monologue. You know, the host is doing their thing and a cast member comes in to interrupt or to help or whatever. I thought Belushi was in fine form. His overbearing personality was a great compliment to Art Garfunkel's very um, quiet, demure personality. Belushi also got some thoughts out about NBC that were legit thoughts at the time, though the audience might not have known it at the time. Art's singing was stellar. His backup band was fantastic. Couldn't help but notice that Belushi was a ball of sweat, but I uh, thought this was an excellent monologue. I thought it was okay myself. We, you were talking about the energy of that, that cold open, and I find like that the intros are so big and the music's so big to just smash right into this kind of quiet, toned-down version of a Sam Cooke song that I really like. Felt a little jarring at first, uh, and I was a little like, oh, we're starting off with a slow tune right away. So when Belushi cut in, I was I was pretty excited about that to bring a little energy. I thought he was a little unfocused in some of his delivery. Uh, I really liked the digs against NBC. And when he was up, he was really up and giving it a lot. And the juxtaposition between his, you know, frenetic, ham-fisted, big versus the very, yeah, quiet and subdued, uh, nuanced Art Garfunkel was, was a really good contrast. Yeah, this was this was pretty good. Well, it's going to be one of those shows, I can tell. So Art, Art I liked it when they kind of had his face on the Zoom there. He looked uh, down to host, DTH. And I also, you know, looking at him, don't you think he, that he should have been at, at some point sideshow Art Garfunkel? Doesn't he look like he should have been a sideshow? <laughs> driving Miss Polly, uh, I, I made that note. <laughs> Garrett Morris was driving Miss Polly. Uh, made me laugh. I thought uh, Art uh, was too modest in this piece. Just a little too soft-spoken for me. Just kind of put off by Belushi, who comes out, who is great at being this, you know, big toxic bastard. But I just really thought it was too much Belushi and not enough Art. It's supposed to be his monologue. And they didn't really do anything with him. They just trotted him out to play a straight man to Belushi yelling, disappointed. John Belushi, this one set me down a trivia rabbit hole. John Belushi refers to Loose Change, which was a miniseries that uh, NBC frigged up. The story there was it was a three-part miniseries, and uh, on night two, they accidentally put night three's tape on, and <laughs> the, wrong night, the wrong episode went out. So you saw part one and then part three. It was fixed after 20 minutes, but uh, yeah. I, I think it should be mentioned, too, at this point in time, like 
NBC is in the toilet. Like NBC is a very distant third, which sounds so strange for me growing up in the, you know, post, you know, Cosby show, Miami Vice, Golden Girls era, right? Yeah. NBC. I mean, NBC is literally must see TV. Yes. Yeah. We now have an ad for the Chromega watch, Chromega 3 watch. It's a watch that needs two people to operate it. We saw this early in the season. Um, This I didn't like it then. I'm not big on this now. It was pretty stupid. But in a way that made me chuckle, might have been a little overlong, but oh, pretty good production and like the over the top setup. And then you get all the hands fumbling around trying to figure it out. Maybe didn't need to go as long as it did, but I, I got a laugh out of it. I guess I, maybe I, I'm going to take a second to eat a little crow because I would always complain that, uh, you know, you shouldn't rerun things. Don't redo the commercial ads. You're a big network show, I like to say, you know. Try something new. Do some new things. <laughs> and I mean, you, you just said you know, they'd aired this before. I feel like I have never seen this before. This is my, as far as my experience goes, this was my first time ever seeing this. So maybe I am the target audience after all. Anyway, uh, I thought I really got, it just reminded me of how shitty, uh, when I was a kid, I had those light up watches, you know, like, ooh, yeah. your watch will light. And until Indiglo came around and changed the game, uh, those light up watches were a joke. Yeah, it's like a, a tiny little LED, not even an LED. It's not a laser. No. It's like some sort of miniature fucking electrode at the end of your watch. So you might be able to see what the minute is. But God <laughs> bless you if you want to know the hour. Indie Glow shortchanged the game, man, big time. I completely yeah. forgot about Indie Glow till right now. I had like three <laughs> of those bad boys. But yeah, I was thinking of the the calculator watches that some people have that like had a weird little comeback a couple years yeah. ago. Yeah, uh, like there's just so many buttons and you can't even see what you're putting into the thing. And it yeah. just... I had one of those. I got it at American Apparel Shock of the Year. <laughs> I think Dwight Schrute had one. Yeah. We now go to the Tomorrow Show. It's Dan's Tom Snyder. Uh, he first talks about uh, missing the the winter storms in the northeast, but uh, is greeted with a mudslide in the morning. And he says it goes to show that weather is everywhere. He's interviewing a battered husband named Frank, who is in silhouette, and Frank is played by Art Garfunkel. Poor Frank began to be abused by his wife after she caught him masturbating. Frank wants to be on the show to show others that might be in the same situations he's in that there's uh, maybe someone else out there, and they're not alone if they masturbate and cry in the dark. Dan keeps asking questions, but gradually reveals more and more information about Frank, his real name, his uh, where he lives, what his job is. And eventually he holds up a picture of him to demonstrate some of the uh, battering he's received. Art, realizing his cover is completely blown and everyone he knows is going to know he's a chronic masturbator who is uh, abused by his wife, jumps forward to cover the picture, but in doing so lunges out of the silhouette. This is a tough and touchy subject for sure. The joke here is not really about abuse as much as it is how clueless Snyder can be. This is definitely not among the best of the Tomorrow sketches. I always like seeing Dan Snyder. Garfunkel was very good in the role he had. We only see him very briefly in his black wig, but my God, he looked like Crispin Glover. Um, All things considered, touchy piece, not one of the best Tomorrows. I'll never complain about seeing Dan Snyder, and uh, Garfunkel was passable. Yeah, Dan Schneider's always really good, but um, like you said, the the subject matter was a little little hard to ride out. Like this is never get done today. 
But the execution of the joke, like if they had just kept it to the like crying while masturbating bit, like that, okay, that's a a, a thing that you would be embarrassed about. That's not maybe going to be so triggering for a, a modern audience sort of a situation. So I think the the crumbling of the the ability to hide the guy's identity was was well executed, and and yeah, Garfunkel was good in it too. It was uh. It was a it was a tough one though with with some of the the choices looking back through a modern day lens. I thought this sketch was super insensitive. It doesn't make the air ten years ago, fucking let alone today. the The whole punchline is that he's a battered husband. That's not a punchline. That's terrible. What cartoon did the the same gag better later? I mean, you can't stretch a whole sketch out of it. But was it uh, was it Homer Simpson when they they wanted somebody wanted to remain anonymous and they said, okay, we'll just call you Homer S. No, wait, yeah. that's too obvious. H. Simpson. Yeah, yeah, that was it was the Simpsons yeah. did it. And there was a series of commercials, too, I remember did it where people were eating a cereal they weren't supposed to eat or something like that. Anyway, I, uh, I really thought this was a miserable sketch and it used human misery as a punchline. I just I like I, I enjoyed Dan doing Tom Snyder. But, uh, I mean, I didn't get anything out of Art Garfunkel. He was just barely there. He was doing some lines in silhouette. Uh, hard pass for me. Shitty, insensitive sketch. Chiron, this woman is overdrawn at the memory bank. We now go to Stephen Bishop. So Stephen Bishop, singer-songwriter, who came to prominence when Art Garfunkel recorded uh, some of his songs on a 76 album, Breakaway. Bishop was due or already uh, had released his second album called Bish in 78. Bishop gets tied in with the show as he had sounds on the soundtrack for Animal House and a small role in the film. He sings On and On, and On and On is from the album Careless. It peaked at 11 on Billboard. This is extremely easy listening. Listening to it, I was like, yeah, people really liked this. Uh, at the time, but uh, it's not a sound I particularly enjoy. Oh, yeah, there's nothing wrong with the performance, but the uh, content of it, we're beating this horse into goo at this point. <laughs> I mean, it's been a while, but if I heard this song on the radio, uh, like I'm on my way back from the beach late on a sunny afternoon, yeah, that sounds like a nice relaxing time to listen to this. It just feels like you know, you're, you're driving your sports car through mud. Like, uh, it sucks all the life out of it for me. Again, competently executed, and, and the song has its place, but I don't understand why they continue to push these slow jam, like, easy listening, like, ballless music on the show. I don't get it. Dude, tell me about it. This is the kind of stuff I would fall asleep at Grandma Ryan's listening to, like, Time Life infomercials that compiled songs like this onto four CDs and they just play them on a loop and I learn the choruses to a million of them and never the rest of the song. Anyway, uh, this, this was this was almost comically bad for my tastes. Just to put this in context, the last thing Matt talked about falling asleep to at Grandma Ryan's house was Anne Murray. <laughs> <laughs> we now go to Miracle in Chicago. Uh, Dan runs an Irish bar with a jukebox, doesn't play Tora Laura. Uh, Bill Murray is there as well as a construction worker, or probably a regular bar fly. Dan has a theory that the Italians run the jukebox industry because they have things like Sinatra and Al Martino. They talk about the St. Patrick's Day Parade, and they wonder if the recently deceased mayor, Richard Daly, will appear at the parade. 
Some people say they saw him last year after he passed. Some heavenly music plays, and a big, like, flash and a puff goes off, and Belushi enters as daily carrying a turkey. He has a message for the new mayor about ways to improve his chances of getting votes. Daly also complains about his grave as he wanted to be interred under glass at the airport with uh, music playing. When Daly finds out that the pub doesn't have Toralora on the jukebox, he makes a call to somebody and complains. Daly then leaves, leaving the turkey behind. Again, we have the loud, the, the big flash. And then a Bing Crosby version of Toralora comes over the jukebox. Okay, I'm glad they did something for St. Patrick's. Um, Daly was one of the country's best mayors, and both Dan and Bill were competent in this sketch. However, this was too inside. It, I'm sure this played really well in Chicago. Yeah, I was like excited when I saw the setting of the bar, and, and they start getting into it right away. And then it just, like you said, way too inside. Uh, very of the time. So that is what it is. You know, if I uh, were to time travel back and spend a year or two watching the news, maybe I would have laughed my ass off at this. But looking back from this far away, I didn't really get much of any of it. So I don't know if that's on my lack of historical knowledge or whatever. But yeah, we're not a whole lot of this. We're not a whole lot in this for me. We're finally we all three of us are on the same page here. Uh, I do I do think to say something of uh, positive note. I, I really enjoyed Dan's Irish accent, and and I noted that Belushi gets like the the fan pop these days when he when he walks out early in the show. Uh, his jokes though they weren't landing so long, and it was a really flat ending. But holy shit. I got I got to pull a gold nugget out of the mud because <laughs> there was a line that made me really laugh really hard. Might have been my laugh of the episode. <laughs> and Aykroyd said, sometimes I feel like complaining to my alderman about it, but I don't know if it's worth wasting a favor on. <laughs> yeah, that was a good line. Yeah. Um, we now have a Chiron, man often bathes alone. We now go to Kiss. So there's a bunch of fans outside backstage of a KISS concert. Belushi's playing the tour manager, and uh, Garrett is playing a security guard who actually holds the people, the list of people to go backstage. So Lorraine first comes in as Alice from the old Frank Tarkenton episode, says she's a friend of Peter Chris. She offers to reward Belushi sexually if he lets her in, but he sends her away. Art Garfunkel shows up as Paul Stanley's brother, Angus, He's an Air Force member who parachuted over the city just to see his brother, and he's carrying a big parachute, and he's in a jumpsuit. He's also not on the list, so he gets sent to the barricade. Tom Davis shows up as Dr. Bob, one of these hippie Dr. Feelgoods with the big nitrous oxide tank. Uh, Garrett does find him on the list, and he goes in. Jim Downey shows up as Ryan O'Neill's brother. He has a pass, so he goes in. Stephen Bishop is not on the list, so he's stopped by Belushi. Bishop sings on and on. Belushi says he hates the song and sends him off. Bill then enters as Jerry Aldini, his record executive character that we'll see a few more times. He's not on the list, and Jane, who is accompanying Bill, is shocked that they won't let Jerry Aldini in. Dan then exits as uh, what's supposed to probably be Paul Stanley. He takes his brother in. Everyone in the crowd, of course, goes nuts. And uh, then uh, Belushi. Belushi decides he wants to go backstage to get a beer. Garrett won't let him in because he's not on the list. Belushi then forces himself in while a few of the crowd sidle in as well. 
Nothing doing on this one. I'm not a big Kiss fan. I, I really don't get if there's any specific jokes there beyond the guy who just wasn't letting people in. Even still, most people he didn't let in should probably not have been let in because they really didn't have the pass. Dan's costume sucked. Um, he was like a hybrid Kiss with a leotard on. I, I kind of wondered if even at that early stage, Kiss like had their look very much copyrighted and were so litigious that they wouldn't let they wouldn't have let him use it or something. And I mean, the, the whole structure of the sketch falls apart, where they set up the whole thing as the list is important. It was was coming from Belushi, but it was Garrett at the end to stop Belushi from going in. I really thought this was a, a just a a real hot mess, to be honest with you. That's funny. I uh, I thought the ending was was pretty a good twist, like a good skit ending. There was definitely like too many people in between for like the the structure of it. You know, like the the build from Lorraine being just a groupie who you expect to try to sneak in to, to Garfunkel showing up as the brother who parachuted in. It seemed like he should have come in later, maybe. But yeah, it seemed like there was there was a lot of a lot going on in the middle. But I had a pretty good laugh when Belushi shut down uh, Bishop and said he hated the song because I didn't really care for it either. So I like that. And then, yeah, I, I thought to have like Belushi about to go in to get a beer and then he actually gets stopped and the whole thing spirals out. I thought that was a pretty clever twist to, to round out a skit that definitely went too long and had a little too much going on in the middle. Uh, I'm a pretty big Kiss fan, I think. Uh, I mean, I'm not like weird about it, but I like Kiss a lot. Kiss are a great example of the kind of music that I wish Saturday Night Live featured more often. I mean, I guess what are we, this is like 1970, are we in 1978? Early 78, yep, yeah? 78, yeah, Mark 78. Okay, so yeah, in 1978, Kiss are an established powerhouse of a band. Uh, maybe it's just too hard rock. I mean, I guess it was pretty hard rock for the time. They just had that ballad. Anyway, I digress. Paul Stanley is not the lead guitarist of Kiss. It's Ace Freely. If I may be a dick about it, <laughs> I'm going to mention that. And uh, yeah, the, the costume that was purportedly Paul Stanley was clearly Gene Simmons' hair. And uh, such a nondescript black leotard, it was uh, what a mess. But I think Jerry Eldini is a fantastic fake name, I, so much that I wrote it down, Jerry Eldini. The the rejects, I kind of wish they'd become more progressively absurd, not to they should have done this to the sketch kind of vibe, but I, I don't know. I didn't like the pace of it. I didn't like the vibe, but I... I I did like some things about it. I thought the end was okay. Uh, but really, I, I was very distracted by wishing that this was the music that the show actually featured. Makes sense, yeah. Because we are actually hearing the music in the background, right? It's rock and roll all night? Yes. Quite and I got to figure, like, the music on Saturday Night Live, it's been so bland. And, you know, you got to figure it's just the taste of the Booker, which is fine. But I don't know. Booker's got no balls. So we now got a weekend update. So Elizabeth... Taylor is being force-fed for charity. Brace yourself, guys, for about 15 years of uh, Liz Taylor is fat jokes coming our way. This is brought to us by Hershey Highway Candy, a, a, a butt joke. So they talk about a baby born without a mother. Um, it's a duplicate of a man's cell, so it's really a clone. And they talk about a millionaire who made a copy of himself years before. It's a photo of Frank Sinatra Sr. and Jr. There's a wrapped-up turtle that is said to be Orson Welles. Weekend Update is offering a reward for Charlie Chaplin's body. Garrett comes in as a science editor to discuss an anti-blood clotting agent that could be used to treat phlebitis, and it's called Hemosin. 
Garrett puts the new drug on the slide of a microscope and they look through the microscope and basically they see a Mighty Mouse cartoon. They talk about Nixon having suffered from phlebitis and uh, they're glad he suffered. There's a really bad glitch where Jane says back to you, Dan, although Dan's already talking. There's a bit about Larry Flint being shot. So point for Chili. They talked about Larry Flint a couple episodes back and Chili said the shooting was coming soon. There's a very strange bit where there's a photo of uh, early 20th century actor Stephen Fetchett is on the screen, and Jane says his name, Stephen Fetchett. We then have a movie review from Bill. He talks about Coming Home, the uh, Vietnam movie starring Jane Fonda and John Voight, um, and he apologizes to Jane for doubting her opposition to the war. He now realizes that the war was a mistake, and he's no longer afraid to say it, no matter what repercussions it may affect his personal or professional life. It was a, it was a action packed update. Didn't feel that long. Um, but what the hell's up here? There's so many flubs each week. I can't tell if it's a tech thing or a personnel thing. It just seems that every week something is going wrong and they don't, re- they don't always respond well when it does. Jane's okay. Dan seems all off and the tech side seems to be a complete mess. There were times in during Chevy's run where he fixed an issue and he was always good at fixing these tech things. So maybe it was just a skill he had. I actually wonder sometimes too. Chevy fixed mistakes so well that I wonder if he made the mistake in the first place just to, uh, get praise for fixing it. There were a few good jokes in here. Garrett's thing was not good. And uh, we saw something similar before. Bill was the best yet he was. Bill's movie review was awesome. No changes for Dan and Jane. Jane is good here. Dan is awkward and obviously hating every second of it. Yeah, I'd mostly agree with you. Aside from the Garrett thing, I got a chuckle out of that. Not going to lie. When it cut to Mighty Mouse out of nowhere. And he was selling it hard. Like he was he was talking really fast. It did go on too long. But I found that kind of humorous. Bill, charisma for days. Uh, I thought his bit was pretty good, too. But uh, outside of that, pretty messy. Jane Jane carries it a lot with her charisma, even if the jokes she's telling aren't, aren't that good. She even seemed like she's getting annoyed. She had a chance with this. It worked really well when she was doing it solo. And they're adding all these extra pieces to it. It's just getting in the way of her being able to do her thing. Dan just still doesn't want to be there from the look of things. And he's been at it for a while. You'd think he would have got the hang of it or at least like accepted it. I don't know. For for such a legendary segment, I didn't realize it spent so much time fumbling around with itself. It's true. It's, it's terrible. It, it does spend a lot of time fumbling around with itself. That's a really good way to put it. I don't really have anything good to say. I thought the Mighty Mouse bit uh, was amusing. And Dan is especially bad. Bill brought the energy, I, I found, but the writing really suffering tonight. There's like no good jokes. They're out of jokes right now. Uh, but I mean, I do like that character usually. That didn't work for me. Garrett didn't work for me. It was fine. Why do you fuck with something that's fine? I hate when people do that. Leave me alone. It seems like they're getting into more like reference humor, like uh, point at the celebrity or point at the thing. And that's the whole joke. And it's a little mean. And I'm not really here for it. We now go to the first musical performance by Art Garfunkel. He sings All I Know, released in 73 on his his album Angel Claire, peaked at number nine. And it's just art, a piano, a guitar, and a cello. Um, I don't even know if there's a piano there now that I think of it. Anyway, he then goes into one of his uh, signature songs from his days with Simon and Garfunkel, uh, Scarborough Fair. Uh, This one was recorded in 68. They paired it with, uh, it's a traditional English song they paired with uh, a Simon composition called Canticle, and that reached uh, number 11. 
this is going to contradict everything Matt and I, well, Matt in particular, I suppose, but I've said it as well. This is some guy standing in the stage, on the stage, with a cello and minimal accompaniment, singing slow, high-pitched ballads. This is the worst recipe. This is everything we hate. But Garfunkel is such a master of his craft that this was brilliant. Like, when I talk about Art Garfunkel, I put him up there with, like, these uber talents of the late 20th. Like, I put him up there with, you know, your Freddie Mercury's, Roy Orbison's, Jackie Wilson, Meatloaf, whoever else would be on that list. To me, this was an absolutely excellent performance. Garfunkel needs no whistles, no bells, nothing else. It's just him and an amazing voice. So uh, two huge thumbs up from me on this one. I agree that it's beautifully executed, wildly talented, so, so good. But even the best piece of cheesecake on top of a pizza is going to be weird and gross. And just vibe-wise, it... Again, it makes it harder for me to get up and laugh, you know, like when the skits come back. It's not the right place and time. Sunday afternoon, sitting outside, it's sunny, it's beautiful, it's quiet, and I'm relaxing. I want to hear it. When I'm here for laughs and energy and engagement, not the right place or time for me. Yeah, I think I'm uh, kind of between uh, you guys. I do I do like Art Garfunkel a lot. And uh, you know what? I think I probably just agree with Mark. I didn't really enjoy the placement of the this particular balladry it was fun to have the hit come out i mean he started with music and i saw that other guy's music and seeing this music and uh, it's kind of giving me bad memories of when there was just too much damn music on the show sometimes and they've gotten better about it it was nice he has the voice of an angel for goodness sakes but still tracking with the algorithm of saturday night live music it's still too dad rocky for me and you're right it's better and it's nice and i like art garfunkel i mean man you're right not the time not the place we now go to looks at books this was written by franken and davis uh looks at books has been a while it's back jane hosts the guests today are people who wrote their own version of whatever happened to the class of 65 whatever happened to the class of 77 which was really only about 10 months before the writers are Todd Labunta, later becomes Todd DeMuca, De La Muca, and Lisa Lupner, Bill and Gilda, as their nerd character. They just go through what has happened to people over the last few months. Uh, I, <laughs> Gilda was hilarious. She's fighting back laughter, talking about things that happened to everyone. Uh, she and Bill back and forth. The repartee is awesome. The way they're bouncing back and forth and interrupting each other, <laughs> getting annoyed with each other. I just loved this sketch note about the trivia this is actually the the one nerd sketch that was written by franken and davis it's, it's usually uh rosie schuster uh with ann beats todd's name of course is uh la bunta that's named after a guy that al franken actually knew who did threaten to sue they changed the name in subsequent sketches i love this too it looks at books as everyone i've seen so far i've loved it felt like a real segment you would see on public access television like, they're just so realistic as these total doofuses. But at the same time, you can tell they're having so much fun that it just adds a whole extra layer. And even the way, like, Jane's sort of being, like, kind of patronizing, but also kind of pleasant to them and, like, having a laugh with them. And they sold the shit out of this. 
I don't know if there was that many actual laughs at what they were saying, but they just did such a good job with the back and forth and the stepping over each other. And just it felt so real, but also they had so much fun with it that it, it hit on multiple levels for me. Me too. Finally, a great sketch this evening. Uh, I love the looks of folks. I was very excited to see it come back. What I thought was really funny is that uh, um, as she has her guests on her program, looks at books, Jane has not read the book. Uh, of course, those performances were fantastic. Uh, Bill's inability to sit still, the constant thrusting of the hips, and Gilda's voice is legendary i thought a noogie was more of a grinding motion and not a it is. action it is yeah okay yeah but that's just how big of a doofus he is he doesn't even know to execute a noogie properly is kind of the joke i got from that chiron this man is a suburban gorilla now we come to schiller's reel don't look back in anger this is a gritty film of an old john belushi visiting the graves of his former castmates he talks to the camera about how everyone was always thought he'd be the first to go, but there he is, the last one left. He goes to the grave and he talks about what happened to each member of the cast. Uh, this is a, a very brilliant piece. Uh, Belushi is excellent. Writing is well done. I'm so glad they didn't set it in a time like, say, it's the year 2000 or something. The ending comes out of nowhere. Uh, a lot of fun. At the time, it was probably it was probably just a silly way to break the tension. That is even more so true today. It's impossible to go back in time. At times, we we fake it pretty well. Like I think with the OJ episode, we did a pretty good job at uh, putting ourselves in the pre-OJ as a murderer uh, setting. With this piece, it's absolutely impossible for me to go back and see it in the time it's was produced really the first thing i knew about john belushi is that he was a funny man who died way too young and that only makes this piece ten thousand times stronger today than it was then so like we're in march of 78 less than four years later almost to the day belushi is dead and between this episode and his actual passing his career gets white hot and uh and, and it's a very small time frame at the time, Belushi was, you know, most popular on the show and probably represented the energy that Saturday Night Live wanted to put out there the best. And oddly enough, like this, we'll go over it, but this isn't the only Schiller reel that gets stronger due to time and real life circumstance. I, I, I really wondered watching this, like, what would this have been if Schiller had asked Murray or Aykroyd or, or even Gilda, who did pass away young, but not first? It's funny. It's extremely sad. It's oddly prophetic it's bleak and yet it gets kind of happy probably just another day of shooting for belushi at the time i did hear an interview with tom schiller on the ian talks comedy podcast which is a good podcast i recommend people listen to schiller said that belushi was partying the night before and was napping on the mattress of the floor of, of a van on the way to the shoot i i think this is just brilliant and i don't know how to look at it from the time but uh i think it would have been very popular and well like then but it gets so much better knowing what happens after that and not just for john but for the the whole cast so uh, i don't know guys maybe that's a bit too much to say maybe i rambled there a bit much but what are you thinking i'm inclined to agree with you as soon as the premise was set it was kind of a little bit of a, i don't know i had a bit of a groan like oh this is gonna age like milk where's this going but then it did lend this weird 
sort of poignant gravitas to the whole thing that I don't know. Again, like usually I try to watch these things more from the frame of reference of when they were put together and not judging too harshly over time, but it, it's good to mention that sort of stuff. But this one, yeah, it definitely hit very different knowing the, the truth. And honestly, when he started dancing at the end, again, like I think we talked before about how finishing a skit is really hard. And I feel like the way he said, like he twisted and he's like, why? For one second, I thought he was going to say, because I killed them all. But then he went in like a bright goofy and started just through the cane and started dancing. And I don't know, man, I lit up like a Christmas tree for that, like with a big smile. There was something really warm and pleasant about that as the finish. And maybe that's just because I needed to break that tension of feeling kind of weird about everything that came before. But yeah, this one hit hit weird, but in a good way. Gosh, yeah, it was weird. Keith, I thought you summed it up quite wonderfully, despite your use of the word rambling. I mean, I don't really have anything to add. You know what? I do have something to add. I think the last cast member to be alive from the original not ready for prime time players will be Chevy Chase. Evil lives forever. <laughs> Watching it, and I, I had to, I've seen it before, of course, but not since we started doing this. I mean, we've been hard on Belushi, but he was still a guy. You know, he was still a human. He had a family. He had friends. There's people that have wonderful stories about him. And certainly, you know, you know, he did die at early, you know, and, and he was the warning for other people to clean, clean up. And I always think of like Carrie Fisher says in the 40th anniversary, the tragedy of John is that he didn't have a scare before he died. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Spook yourself straight. You do get, you know, that happens. People get scared straight. Yep, I, I put this on a on a whole different level than a lot of the other stuff we saw. Um, Schiller's reels compared to all the other films we've seen thus far are far and above the other stuff. And and this is just this is great. And I know what else we're gonna see from Tom Schiller over the next decade. Um, and this isn't the only one that has that vibe. Excellent, excellent piece. Chiron, this person's middle name is Trouble. We now go to Andy Kaufman. Uh, Andy starts by messing around with a record player. He addresses the audience with this highbrow patrician accent. He is told that there's about 20 minutes left in the show, and the producers told him he could do whatever he wants. So he wanted to break with tradition. He didn't want to come out as his American self, which he uses his own voice to demonstrate, or his foreign character. He wants to be himself, and he's decided to read The Great Gatsby to the audience. And that's exactly what he does. The audience starts by loving it, then hates it. He does the old pro wrestling thing where the bad guy says if he hears one more boo, he's leaving. He fakes everyone out, come back and starts reading again. Lauren comes out to cut him off. The audience is very happy about this. And he says he's planning on playing a record after he finishes reading. The audience requests the record. And Andy says he'll play it after he finishes the book. Finally gives in, plays the record. Here's my issue with this. I, I know this was a, a bit of his stand-up act, and I know he would go on for a very long time reading this book. Um, I don't know if it's because of the way the show is and how they have to keep times, but somebody starts either coughing or gagging or throwing up really early. Uh, this is a great piece. It's brilliant. I love it. But there had to be plants cutting him off early so he could get this whole routine done in the time they actually allotted for him. Way too early for the, the booze and stuff to be coming in. We know this because there has been other stuff on this show that has deserved booze far more, and they never come. Would have been a great execution without the 
plants if he had the time to do it. And he has such amazing control over his audience anyway that they, that it would have come to this. But it just seemed like this was abbreviated for television in a very false manner. Yeah, I think you nailed it. This is the kind of bit that has to drag on super long and like it comes in waves, you know, it's funny then it's obnoxious and then it suddenly becomes really uncomfortable and then it becomes funny again because the tension builds so well and it, it does take a long time to navigate this kind of joke and and you know Kaufman's kind of a master of that but it definitely felt a little bit rushed and yeah I noticed the coughing very early on like as soon as he started reading and I thought that seemed odd still had a good laugh at the finish but pretty clunky yeah I mean Andy is such an interesting unique performer the voices the sense of humor one of a kind and I, I was enjoying the gag but then it just started to feel weird, and and I, I couldn't put my finger on it when I was watching it. I, I mean, listening to you guys helps with that, but I couldn't find my way into it like I usually do with his sketches, and I'm not familiar with like his live act in these bits or anything. We now go to the Looking for Mr. Goodbar Sleepy Time playset. So it's a set of dolls for young girls based on the plot of Looking for Mr. Goodbar. It's a bleak crime movie and, and novel before that. Gilda is playing her little girl. She's playing with the dolls, but she's following the instructions given to her by the commercial announcer, voiced by Bill Murray. And th- these dolls are supposed to go to clubs, down tequila sunrises, and then bring men home. Um, and then the, the tagline is, the looking for Mr. Goodbar, sleepy time playset, brings gratuitous sex and random violence into her little world. And of course, these toys are made by Mainway. Really funny idea. Played excellent by Gilda as the kid. Bill is the announcer. I, I I love jokes about merchandise for films and TV shows that shouldn't have merchandise. In Goffman, waiting for Goffman when when uh, Corky is selling remains of the day lunch boxes. And and one time I was at a flea market and there were Downton Abbey mouse pads. I mean that sort of thing just hits me in the right spot. I I really enjoyed this sketch and I thought Gilda and Bill were fantastic. <laughs> remains of the day lunchboxes that kills me yeah no i thought this was great i really enjoyed it uh the right kind of dark and yeah uh gilda and bill both crushing it still uh, um yeah i i laughed really hard at this and and uh, they wrapped it up nice and tight like it, it didn't go over long but they they let it hang for a second walked on when the time came i thought this was excellent so good gilda is strangely gifted at playing children you know they they push it a little you have to keep picking up strange men until you are killed a psychotic psychotic blonde homosexual they and this is a child and these are toys and that's uh you know maybe you don't get this on network tv you got to get one of those streaming deals today uh to get this one on the air but you got it's in the main way universe and on that merit i accept it as a fantastic main way commercial parody <laughs> she was like letting the uh narrator tell her how to play so she could learn how to win and she's like and you got it down the tequila sunrises and she starts splashing on the doll and then she decides <laughs> to try some herself <laughs> i loved it it was so good so we now go to crying in my sleep this was released as a single on watermark in october 77 it didn't chart this was definitely the weakest of arts contributions um, as far as I'm concerned, they were all great up to this, and this was just standard, you know, still art, still great, but, uh, you know, they can't all be awesome. Now that you mention it, like, I feel like 
it was a bit of a lesser song than maybe the other ones, but I was also so done with the sleepy time, easy listening, pretty music at this point. Again, masterfully executed, beautiful voice, but get to the jokes. Give me some energy. Give me some life. Keep me awake. It's almost two in the morning. Seriously. Seriously. What the heck? You know, I'll say more on the way out, but I, this has sure. just been, this show has been such a waste for me. We now go to the good nights. This is a very quick one. It's basically good night and goes right to the, uh, in, in my case, the Broadway logo. Uh, there was nothing fancy or flashy with this one, although the, the crowd, the, uh, the, the cast and crew for the brief second we saw them seem to be enjoying themselves. Sorry, let's rate this show. The host, Art Garfunkel, very limited in what he did in sketches tonight. Um, this very reminiscent of the early ones where the host kind of did their own thing and uh, and just maybe popped in every now and then. He had some acting experience, so it would have been nice to see him in a bit more. But for me, if that was the expense of him doing music, I don't know if that's a trade I would have wanted. I'm fine with how it turned out. Uh, the weaknesses tonight, I don't think, were the performances. I think, by and large, the Not Ready for Primetime players got along well without him in the sketches. But again, you would have liked to have seen him in a bit more than he was. Wildly underutilized comedically, overutilized musically for the style. Lots of charisma, like Garfunkel. I think he's wildly talented, but I think they put him to poor use tonight. Total waste of the host. Complete waste. You have Art Garfunkel here. And, you know, I, I'm not getting the impression. I mean, what do I know? Our Garfunkel and I don't text. This was some, like, late-night variety show bullshit. I did not appreciate it. Not appreciated. The music. Stephen Bishop's song didn't do it for me. Thematically, it gelled well with Garfunkel stuff. Uh, to me, Garfunkel stuff, like I said, it was good. Last one was a bit too blah for me. Um, but that's kind of graded on a, on a Garfunkel curve. Like I said, there's no whistles or bells with... Uh, with Garfunkel, I've been bored to tears by performers doing up-tempo things with large bands, lots of whistles and bells, and high-tempo dancers, but I've never been bored by Art Garfunkel. Uh, this felt like almost two different shows. All of the music felt like it belongs on Sunday afternoon, and like like Matt's at Grandma's house or something, or like a hangover day after a wild Saturday night, you're having like your chill, relaxing Sunday afternoon. And that's where all that music fits, not on the wild, crazy Saturday night. So I don't know. Uh, again, no shade on the talent or the ability, but the choice and the timing, no thanks. Mark, we're really on the same page with the uh, the music here tonight. Uh, it's your it's your big hit late night Saturday show. You, you've got such a cross section of viewers, I would imagine. I, we don't have the demos, but I would imagine that a lot of young people watch this show. A lot of college kids probably watch this show, huddled around a little TV in their dorm rooms, like I did in a dorm room. I'm, I'm not fucking special. <laughs> like people have been doing that for decades. And you're going to trot me out a ballad this late at night? Go fuck yourself. <laughs> what was the worst sketch of the night, fellas? Probably the Tom Schneider. Just uh, uh, it was it was pretty brutal. Uh, again, Dan was good, but I don't know. Just made me uncomfortable. Real poor sub choice of subject matter. And everything else tonight was either f that wasn't good was just kind of flat and disengaging. This one made me actively feel not good. Yeah, uh, agreed 100%. This was the worst sketch of the night. Uh, domestic violence should not be played for punchlines. Shame, quite frankly. Shame. Shame on them. Yeah, I took the, uh, I completely 
took the tomorrow sketch differently. Um, I, I took it to show Snyder being a fool, not, uh, not that it was an abuse joke as much as it's a Tom Snyder's an idiot joke. Um, I get your points though. The worst sketch for me though was the kiss one between that and miracle in Chicago, but the kiss sketch is, was just bad for me. It was long. Um, and the only thing in there that really worked for me was Bill Murray. It just didn't, didn't work for me. What was the best for you guys? Looks at books, without a doubt, for me. I was smiling like I, I had a good time with looks at books before. So as soon as I saw the, the title card come up for it, I put a smile on my face and it only got bigger as it went on. I laughed out loud multiple times. Charming, funny, all the thumbs up. I'm going to stick my big toes up for this one. <laughs> It was tough for me. I really liked looks as uh, looks at books as well, uh, but I think I will have to go with the main way toy sketch with Gilda for my favorite sketch of the night. It was really outrageous. It was really over the top. It was it was pretty controversial in its own way. You know, when I heard it was from Mainway Toys, it just it brought it all home. It all made sense. <laughs> I I loved it. Wow, we're a three-way split here. Um, either one of those would have been my pick on any other night, but unfortunately, Don't Look Back in Anger was there. It's it's just too, it hits on too many levels for me to pick anything else. But both Good Bar and Looks at Books had me laughing a lot, uh, a lot. So it's it's kind of. It's kind of sad these three wound up on the same show. Oh, yeah. Any other night, these are all standouts. Like All yep. three of these are excellent. I, I considered them all myself, but I had to go yeah. with the one that actively made me laugh the most and smile the hardest. Who's your star of the night, fellas? This was tough, but I'm going to give it to Gilda. I feel like her and Bill in both of those skits were so good together. But she's doing just a little more of the heavy lifting where Bill's off screen narrating and she's on selling it with the the physicality and and playing a little kid so perfectly. But also like the little kid, like sort of getting it more than most people want to realize kids get stuff like there's some Mm -hmm. nuanced shit going on there with her performance. So for, for me, she's she's taking it tonight. That makes two of us. Gilda Radner was my favorite performer of the evening. Terrific in the toy sketch. Amazing in looks at books. She was pretty cute in the uh, opening sketch. I thought she was certainly my standout of the evening. So funny. Uh, we're, we're on different pages again. Uh, not too different. I went with Bill Murray, but I, I almost went with Belushi. Um, Bill Murray was all over this show and, and really good in everything he was in. Even the, the even the kiss sketch I didn't like he was good in. The Irish thing that fell flat, I, I thought he was great. Um, just across the board, this was a really strong night for Bill Murray. What put him over the top for me, though, was how much I, I finally enjoyed his, his his celebrity movie rant. Overall, to me, this was a pleasant surprise. First, about, first and foremost, the bulk of the music and enjoying art is a personal choice. It depends on your feeling of Garfunkel. And uh, I, I hold him in extremely high regards. Um, sketch by sketch, I mean, this was pretty good. The funny thing about this show is how bottom-heavy it was. You don't see it that often where the best stuff is at the end. Uh, the Good Bar play, play set was short, fun concept, uh, done extremely well. Tomorrow, definitely edgy, dark, and, and far more controversial than usual, but Ackroyd still brought me in. Update was a clunk fest. There was some laughs. I've kind of gotten used to the clunk, but it still annoys me. 
you know, we had three amazing sketches there, almost back to back, or three amazing segments there with uh, Goodbar, Don't Look Back in Anger, Looks at Books. I mean, my God, that's so strong of a of, of a of a batch. And Andy Coffin was in there too. Biggest knock I have is really how Garfunkel wasn't in sketches as much as a as a as he was desirable. But this was almost a throwback to an early one. This is not yet a formulaic show where they're gonna drop Garfunkel like this is you know. Garfunkel's going to meet the cheerleaders, and then he's going to be with Mary Catherine Gallagher, and then he's with Mangle, and then he's with Mr. Peepers, and it's just Garfunkel, go be yourself, and we're going to let them bring it. You know, I can't, I can't really knock him for that because the show is not there yet, and, and I'm so glad it's not there yet. All things considered, I, I went kind of high on this one. I went 7.5. Yeah, I uh, underutilizing the host a little bit too much music for the style that it was. One pretty rough sketch and a couple of clunky ones in between, some flatliners, maybe held me back a little bit from going as high as you. But, yeah, I, I like the cold open a lot, the looks at books, the the main way toy sketch, the, the uh, Schiller's reel, all wildly strong. So this was a very, like, peaks and valleys night for me. Based on how much I did like what I saw, I'm going to give it a 6.5. This was a tough episode for me to watch. There was so much of it I didn't like, but I, I really liked it when I liked it. I didn't like the cold open very much. I thought the monologue was pretty bad. The tomorrow sketch was particularly egregious. I did really like looks at books, and I really liked the toy sketch. Holy shit, Weekend Update was bad. And the kiss sketch wasn't great. The music, oh my god, all the music. And on top of wasting your host, I'm not feeling as generous. I'm going to give this a 4.5 out of 10. Wow. So with my 7.5, Matt's 4.5, and Mark's 6.5, we wind up with a 6.2. That's 0.5 lower than the uh, IMDb has it at 6.6. Folks over there rank this as the 19th or the second worst episode of the year. And uh, number 503 today for all episodes. That pro- that sounds really low to me, but that probably uh, gels pretty closely with what you guys are thinking. Yeah, I was super disappointed. I came into this with high expectations because I, mm-hmm. I knew what a presence Garfunkel brought to the stage. I didn't know they weren't going to write anything for him. So, Mark, thank you very much for joining. It's been too long. I'm glad you're back. And you'll be joining us again for the season three finale in about four or five weeks. Yeah. Thanks for having me back. It was a pleasure. I've been missing my Saturday nights. So, Matt. Yes, sir. Do you know who's hosting next week's episode? I do not. Please inform me. Jill Clayburg. I know that name. Yeah, she hosted in season one. How did I feel about it? It was not one of your favorites. I remember that. You gave it a four out of ten. Oh. But you were a lot meaner back then, I think. <laughs> You've mellowed with age. <laughs> and her uh, her musical guest is Eddie Money. Eddie Money. Okay, I'm curious. So Matt and I will be back in about a week with Jill Clayburgh and uh, Eddie Money. But until then... We'll be looking back in anger at books for Mr. Goodbar here in SNL.